Brody team. Adam, so good to see you, brother. Good morning, church. Uh, we are in our series, Making Much of Jesus, and you can sit down. <laughs> uh, Rick uh, Rodeaver, our senior pastor and family, uh, have been in Japan in their home safe and sound. Did you have a good time, Asher? Good. Um, but he's still on sabbatical, and so we, have, we are blessed today to have uh, Dylan Budd, from Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa coming to, to uh, preach today to, to bless you guys. Uh, he's, a, uh, he's a husband to Malia for, for 14, uh, 19 years. Uh, they have four kids who are uh, thankfully uh, taken care of by grandma and grandpa this weekend, and he's come to uh, bring us God's word on singleness. So welcome him. Welcome him. <laughs> Well, it's a great, it's a great joy to be with you. Um, on behalf of my wife, uh, I send you greetings from the saints at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa. Uh, we have admired your church uh, from afar, uh, more in more ways than you know. Uh, you are an influence in Orange County, and uh, I have been personally uh, the benefit, uh, the beneficiary of your guys' faithfulness here, particularly Pastor. Rick, um, I was sharing with somebody a bit ago just how much of a friend he's been and, um, and been really interested in uh, the things that are going on in other churches. And she was quick to say, oh, that he does that with everyone. Uh, he's just kind of interested in everyone. I was like, oh, that kind of made me feel a lot less special. Uh, <laughs> but I suppose that's just, that's just the character of, of the man, and it's been reflected in a lot of ways uh, here. Uh, so thank you for having me. It is a joy to be with you. I'm going to ask you to stand one more time, if you would, for the reading of God's word. Uh, if you're able, of course, turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at two uh, very short parables. As soon as we start to read them, it'll look familiar. And, and of course, that's only true if you've been in and around church, if you're new. Uh, you will hear more of these parables uh, as you walk with Jesus. So uh, Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus is preaching. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven, verse 45, is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Beloved, this is God's holy word. You may be seated. Well, two questions we're trying to answer this morning is what does a uniquely Christian approach to singleness look like, and how can that unique Christian approach to singleness, how can that be a witness to the world in a way that shows off the glory of God? Well, if you're an astute Bible reader, I've just read two parables this morning that seem to have virtually nothing to do with marriage or singleness. And yet, as I hope that we'll all come to see, these two parables get at a Christian experience so central to the core of what we need 
that its application in the Christian life, including singleness, is just pregnant, bursting with application. Both the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great value highlight a Christian experience, a reality that we've all come to experience if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, and that is the experience of, of joy, joy. And so in these short verses, I want us to see, if you're a note taker, if you're moving through the sermon, this is helpful. I want us to see in this short, these two short parables, I want us to see the joy of the gospel. And then I want us to hear of the demand of the gospel. And then we'll end with how this is related to a Christian theology for singleness. So the joy of the gospel, the demand of the gospel, and then how this applies to a Christian theology for singleness. First, the joy of the gospel. The parable is very simple. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like the unlikely discovery of a treasure hidden in a random field. Or the kingdom of heaven is like the intentional discovery of a pearl that comes with great value. Joy is the outcome of both discoveries. Joy is at the center of these two parables. Joy is one of those experiences that if you sit down and you try to define it, define it, it's pretty difficult to define it. It's one of those things that's hard to define, but you know when you've experienced it. It becomes very distinct when you've experienced joy. Joy is an experience that is deeper than happiness, but is not absent of happiness. Joy is an experience that is richer than human pleasure, but it is not absent of pleasure. Joy is experienced in the present. It has an existential reality to it. It is experienced in the present, but it has an otherworldly longing attached to it. C.S. Lewis referred to himself as an unlikely convert to Christianity. C.S. Lewis wasn't raised in a Christian home, and in his early adulthood, he became sort of a fierce critic to Christianity. And yet, as is the story of many of us, although C.S. Lewis was not pursuing heaven, heaven was most certainly pursuing him. And in his autobiography, Lewis's autobiography entitled Surprised by Joy, Lewis writes about how this otherworldly kind of joy broke in on him one day. Later in his book, The Weight of Glory, Lewis would go on to describe this experience of joy in this way. This is what C.S. Lewis writes, quote, Joy is that sharp, wonderful stab of longing. It produces longing, joy does, that weighs heavy on the heart, but it does so with precision and coordination. Joy dashes in, Lewis says, it dashes in with the agility of a hummingbird, claiming its nectar from the flower, and then zips away. Joy pricks and then vanishes, leaving a wake of mystery and longing behind it. See, unlike mere happiness or mere pleasure, joy doesn't require certain accommodations. Joy can be experienced in the middle of deep sorrow and, and suffering. And no one talked more about joy than Christ himself. The only one second to Christ probably would have been 
Paul the Apostle and both Christ and Paul the Apostle experienced, as you know, great joy or great suffering rather in life, great hardship in their circumstances. And yet joy was never tethered to their immediate trial. Instead, joy, it seems, has the ability to transcend even the most unpleasant of circumstances and root itself in something more permanent, more lasting. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this about gospel joy. Gospel joy. Quote, he says, The great characteristic of this joy that the gospel gives is that it is a happiness that is not dependent on external circumstances. The world, Lloyd-Jones says, the world in its attempt to give us joy and happiness always does one or two things. The world has got sort of some counterfeit joys. And first, the, the, the world will attempt to uh, manipulate our circumstances. Now, you know this to be true. This sort of, this isn't actually, if you're going through a hard time, this isn't actually what's happening. This, the world will sort of reinterpret that and manipulate our, cert, our circumstances. Now, the other attempt, the, uh, Lloyd-Jen says, is that the world will try to drug us and make us insensitive to them. So if we're going through hard things, just sort of numbing the pain. Just numb the pain, and then, and then you can experience some kind of joy. And as, you, as you've come to know, probably, that numbing wears off, and the trial meets you in the morning. But the gospel, here's what Lloyd-Jones says, and listen to this. The gospel is entirely different. The gospel puts joy within us. Here is the first great secret. This joy comes from within and is a part of us. It is not manufactured from the outside. It is a condition of being. This very gospel that I preach to you gives you joy, not by changing the circumstances and surroundings in your life, but by changing you. In our parable this morning, joy came bursting into the heart of the farmer and in the heart of the merchant. And it came bursting into their hearts because of the value of what they found. This parable is is a parable about value and joy that the value brings. They deemed the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price of more valuable than than anything else that they currently possessed. And so the prospect of possessing the treasure and the pearl produced great joy. Notice the joy came even before the possession of the treasure. The prospect of even possessing this was an occasion for great joy. Well, what is Jesus saying? Well, very simply, he's saying that the discovery of the gospel of the kingdom, the discovery of the gospel of the kingdom, whether by accident like the farmer who stumbles upon the treasure or intentionally like the merchant who's in search of a fine pearl, The discovery of this otherworldly gospel hope is the most valuable thing that anyone could ever possess. Think about it. As you think about the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel, in the gospel there is promise. There is promise of pardon for sin from God, forgiveness with God. But that's not the end of the gospel. The gospel continues and says this pardon from God, this forgiveness from God gives us access to now have fellowship with God. The good news gets better as we learn about fellowship and relationship with God. He's no longer just judge and creator. He's now father. Well, the gospel goes on to reorder our loves and it guarantees us an inheritance where joy in God is our food forever. 
And therefore, what Jesus is saying in this parable is that the very thought of possessing this treasure brings a thrill of joy to the soul, to the one who stumbles upon it. Finally, before we move on to the next point, notice with me who has access to this kingdom treasure. Who, who gets this? Who has the privilege of this? Notice with me, both the blue-collar farmer and the white-collar merchant. In Jesus' economy, it doesn't matter someone's socioeconomic status. All that matters is they have eyes to see and ears to hear that what they are stumbling upon is of immeasurable value. In fact, you'll hear this throughout Jesus' ministry, especially in the parables, is those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Not everyone who stumbles upon the treasure recognizes that it's actually the treasure of the universe. And so maybe that's a question for you before we even move on to the demand of the gospel. Do I see it? Have I delighted in the truth of the gospel that my sins are forgiven? I have got fellowship with God and my eternity is sealed and guaranteed. Well, that is the joy of the gospel. The gospel brings a joy when you happen upon it. Next, the, the joy of the gospel leads to now this demand of the gospel. It calls us to do something. It beckons us to respond to it. It has a demand. Let me read the parable again for you so we get this in our minds Again, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells, here's the demand, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went, notice the reaction, the demand, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The joy of the gospel leads to the demand of the gospel. Christianity is not a duty-centric religion. What I mean by that is the Christian faith isn't about dry conformity or static obedience to the commands of God. Aren't you glad? In fact, Christianity is much different than every other world religion or ideology. It isn't duty-centric. Instead, these parables from Christ teach us that Christian obedience and Christian behavior is fueled not by mere obligation, but by joy. The farmer and the merchant happen upon, when the farmer and the, and the, and the merchant happen upon the treasure, they don't walk away going, oh man, I know what this means. I found this treasure. I found this amazing pearl. I know what this means. I'm going, to have to, I'm going to have to sell some stuff to get this. I'm going to have to liquidate all of these treasures that I love. I'm going to have to get rid of these old things that I, I really love. I know what this means. That is not the reaction of the merchant or the farmer. Instead, the joy, it was joy that compelled the liquidation of everything they had in order to possess this thing. Again, they felt and experienced and saw the value. No, Christianity is not a duty-centric religion. It is a pleasure-centric religion. Another writes this, quote, joy, listen, Joy is the engine of change. 
Joy is the engine of change. In his joy, he sells all that he has to buy that field. Listen, the gospel demands full allegiance to Jesus Christ. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. The gospel demands full allegiance to Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it, your life will change when you have genuinely put faith in Jesus Christ. It will change. God will mess with you in the best possible ways. But this sacrifice, this demand, this change is fueled by pleasure and not mere obedience. It's hard to even call it a sacrifice, isn't it? Because what the farmer and the merchant gave up again was far less valuable than what they received. In fact, this parable is getting at really the essence of Christianity. The Christian faith, to hammer home this point even further, the Christian faith is not don't be a jerk, don't be discontented, don't look at pornography, don't get a sex change, don't be a homosexual, don't abort babies, and don't get drunk with wine. That's not what Christianity is. No, instead, the Christian faith says we do abandon these sinful behaviors, not because of mere obligation, but because we found something better in Christ. We found something that tastes even sweeter than that besetting sin that we cannot seem to get out of. One theologian says it this way, quote, the root power of sin is severed by the power of a superior pleasure. Do you find yourself right now in this cul-de-sac? I can't get out of this sin pattern. I hate it. I don't want it. I now see it's wrong, but I return to it over and over and over again. The Bible says you do not have a willpower issue. You don't have a willpower issue. You have a delight issue. You have a pleasure issue. As C.S. Lewis would say later on in Mere Christianity, we are far too easily pleased. That the sum and seed of these sinful patterns is a, is a pleasure issue, a joy issue. The process of the Christian life, isn't it? The process, the Christian life is the process of discovering and rediscovering the true value of things. Over and over and over again. That's what I love about gospel preaching churches like this is they put the treasure in front of us every single week so we trip on it every single week and we go, oh yeah, that's better than everything. That's why I'm happy. <laughs> that's why I can get through this trial. That's why I'm liquidating everything to follow this Jesus. Reflecting on his own life, the Apostle Paul says this in Philippians 3, 7 and 8. He says this, but whatever gain I had, a famous text, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss. Think of the farmer and the merchant. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I might possess the treasure. 
let the reader understand, those who have ears to hear, the thrill, the pleasure, the worth of knowing Christ is far better than anything and everything we leave behind to follow him. A refrain throughout the Old and New Testament, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. It's not taste and see that the Lord has rules for you to follow. Oh, there are rules in the Christian life for sure. They are for our flourishing. They're for our good. But we taste and see that the Lord is good, that he's good. To follow Christ is a call to repentance, but it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. In his presence, there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is who is calling us to follow him. Do we see that the treasure we gain is far better than the treasure we leave behind? If so, then the joy of the gospel does lead to the demand of the gospel. Well, finally, you, you guys asked me, your elders asked me to talk about singleness. <laughs> what on earth does this have to do with singleness or marriage or any sort of human relationship? I think it has everything to do with it. I think it has everything to do with it. Let me explain. The Christian understanding of marriage and singleness stands completely by itself when you compare it to other world religions. The way we view marriage and the way we view singleness stands utterly by itself when you compare it with other major world religions. For instance, in the first century, when the New Testament was being written, singleness was universally looked upon as a negative thing. It was looked down upon, singleness. Why? Well, of course, because family was everything. Procreation was everything. Offspring was everything. Legacy was everything. Patriarchy. How are you going to have income? How are you going to sustain your clan? How are you going to thrive and have joy without family? In fact, to be a woman in particular in the first century, to be a woman who was either barren or single was seen universally as a curse from God. Why? What, what can she contribute? What kind of legacy will she have? What kind of dignity? What kind of joy will she be able to have in life as either a single woman or unable to have children? The entire world believed this to be true. The Greeks believed this. The Jews believed this. Egyptians believed this. This was the view of the entire world. But this is not the view of the Christian. A Jewish Messiah walks on to humanity 2,000 years ago, named Jesus Christ, a single man, by the way, who never married and never had biological children of his own. Christ was a single man, and yet he enters humanity, and he sets the world on fire with a revolution that is still happening today. And this single revolutionary, the Messiah of Israel, appoints Paul the apostle, another single man, who by far writes more about human relationships than anyone in the Bible, though he's never been married and though he doesn't have children of his own. Even more scandalous than this, Paul, this Paul the Apostle who was sent out by Christ Jesus, Paul would write a letter to the church in Corinth where he says this, and this is where it is scandalous. Paul says, if you are married and you want to get married, great, go for it. That sounds lovely. You should do that. But if you're single, 
Paul says, stay single. Well, to us today, that may not be sort of an earth-shaking revelation now because we have more and more people staying single for longer and longer, and maybe not for biblical reasons. But for Paul in the first century to write down, if you want to stay single, stay single. What are you saying, Paul? Do you want somebody to have no dignity, no joy, no treasure, no livelihood? Stay single. Again, this is... this. View of singleness, a Christian theology of singleness is distinctly unique in the world. It's an incredible statement. Ultimate dignity, and this is where we tie in what we just discovered in the treasure of the field and the, field, uh, the, the pearl of great price. Ultimate dignity, ultimate value and joy doesn't come from knowing a spouse Instead, the Christian faith, Christian theology says, dignity, value, and deep joy comes from knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your truest husband. In the parable of the hidden treasure, Jesus used the Greek word crypto to describe the hiddenness of the treasure. Crypto, it means to be concealed or, or hidden. This is where the cryptocurrency comes from, to be hidden, which is why I probably never understood how cryptocurrency ever works, because it's hidden, it's concealed. To be hidden, that's the word that Jesus uses in the parable. It's hidden in the field. What's interesting is Paul the Apostle, listen, used the same word crypto to describe this. Paul used the same word as he describes the revelation of Jesus Christ in Colossians chapter 2, 2 and 3. Essentially, Paul is saying, Paul desired that the church in Colossae would reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, Paul says, which is Christ. And then here, Paul says in verse 3, in him in whom Christ are hidden, crypto, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that the central jewel of our Christian joy is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So when you are walking along and you stumble upon this Christian treasure, Christianity has a lot to offer. There is a worldview, there is an ethos, there is an ethic that, is a, that has affected the world around us for the last 2,000 years. Christianity offers a lot. But what Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ is the central jewel of Christian theology. He is the central treasure of the Christian. When you stumble upon Christ, you stumble upon something that is so earth-shattering, so revolutionary that it begins to change your entire life because the value of the one that you have stumbled upon is immeasurable. So then the key to Christianity is the revelation of Jesus Christ to be the source of your and my deepest longings and desires. In him, Paul says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Later on, Jesus would say to his disciples, he would say, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. That's why, beloved, that's why the New Testament doesn't place marriage and family as the highest aim for every human soul. Because despite the blessings that family can provide, and there are many, 
Family can't actually deliver on the most fundamental need of the human heart. Deep joy in Jesus Christ is our most fundamental need. That's why Paul can say in the first century, if you want, if you want to be single, stay single. I wish you would be single, Paul says, like me, because we can go spread this treasure everywhere. Revolutionary. So to singles, listen. I don't want to minimize at all in this talk. Minimize the loneliness you may feel or the pressure you may feel internally and externally to get married. I pastor a church whose median age is like 31. And so I've heard both from our guys and our gals that I feel internally, I feel like there's this clock that is ticking. And I'm not, I'm not married yet, and I'm 24, and I've been in like 16 weddings, and I don't want to be a groomsman or in the wedding anymore. I want to be, I want to be the groom in the wedding. And, or I'm 32, and I feel like this clock is ticking, and I'm tired of being, again, I'm tired of being in the, in the, in the bridal party. Or, or maybe you've been waiting longer. Maybe you're 50 or 60 or 70. You're waiting for this. So I don't want to minimize the internal pressure that you may feel being single. But there's also, isn't there, external pressure. It's not enough. you got internal. This clock is going. This sort of proverbial clock is going. But you also have well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ that keep trying to set you up with somebody else all of the time. Right, this godly person, you're gonna you're gonna love them. I think I think you're gonna love them, and they love you know they love Jesus and, and all of these things, and and, you, and it doesn't work, and you're you're sort of you feel these internal pressures and external pressures, and not only that, but especially in churches and evangelical churches, we can with good intentions sort of make all of our programs and all of our ministries built around the family, right? We got all of these sort of things that are built around the family, and singles can sometimes just feel like. Am I in a, an addendum here? Am I just sort of an add-on, an afterthought to church life? So I, I know that singleness can present all kinds of, of challenges. However, I want to present a vision for your life, listen, where you no longer feel like you need to wait. Like you'd feel like you no longer need to wait in order to have a full and satisfying life. In other words, if you are single and you are in Christ, you are not an incomplete person waiting for somebody else to come along so you can have a more fulfilling life. If you are a Christian, you are waiting for nothing because you have already found the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, your Lord. Anything added to your life is, is an add to your life. It doesn't complete your life. You're waiting for nothing. You have everything. The gospel of the kingdom instead, rather this is Lloyd-Jones' quote, the gospel that I preach to you gives you joy not by changing your circumstances and the surroundings of your life, but by changing you. You're not waiting on anything. You're already full. The gospel of the kingdom puts joy so deep within you that nothing added to your life, and by the way, nothing taken from your life can threaten the stability of this kind of joy. If you are in Christ, you're waiting for nothing. Well, three points of application. I understand you guys have small groups where you, you meet in small groups, and I think there's coffee and 
conversation and these kinds of things that you can gather around and begin to talk about these things. So here's three implications or three applications, and I have singles in mind given everything I've just said. So three points. Number one, these will be short, I promise. Number one, reject the lie from the serpent. Reject the lie from the enemy. Satan's lie in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 was essentially this. God is stingy and he doesn't want you to be happy. Did God actually say you can't eat of everything? Why would he say that? Why would he keep one thing from you to have a full and satisfied and complete life? That's the lie in the garden, and he's been repurposing that lie, recycling that lie ever since the beginning. God is stingy. He doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to be complete like him. That's why he kept that from you. And if you're a single, you've probably already had this lie from the serpent in your ear. God doesn't want you to be happy. That's why you're not married. He's stingy. That person over there is married, and they're a total idiot. I don't know how they got married, and you didn't. God clearly doesn't want you to be married because he's stingy. Or another lie from the enemy, God is just waiting for you to be good enough, to accomplish enough in your career or in your relational life so that you've got something to offer somebody Well, they'll actually love you. That's another lie from the enemy. One is that God doesn't want you to be happy, and another one is a works-based righteousness. You just need to do more, try harder, and that's how you get in. So that's number one. If you're, in, if you're single in here, you reject the lie from the enemy. God does want you to be happy, and his ultimate fulfillment of that promise is in Christ, the treasure of the universe. Number two, the only human, this is interesting, the only human relationship that will continue into glory are those that we find in the local church. Earthly marriages will cease and even your singleness will give way to a heavenly marriage where Christ is our groom forever. Earthly marriages will give way to a heavenly marriage. Your singleness will give way to a heavenly marriage and therefore the only earthly relationships that continue in glory are those in the local church, are those in the faith family of God. And so to, to singles, I don't want you, I need, I'm praying for a spouse, I'm waiting for a spouse. It's okay to pray and wait for a spouse, but don't only do that. Invest in meaningful friendships here in the church. Not as a means to another end, but in, as the end themselves, as, as, as relationships where you can foster love for one another, accountability where you can be honest and known and flourish. Find friendship in the local church. I think this is a forgotten virtue in the church. That's number two. Number three, finally, if the Lord does bring a spouse into your life, and if Christ is at the same time your treasure and the source of your deepest joy, then you will be less inclined to need joy from your spouse and happiness and completeness from your spouse. You'll be less inclined to need from them and more inclined to serve them. Because if you are convinced that you are okay, you are absolutely satisfied in Christ, you are going to be better at loving someone and not just taking from them. 
We know this to be true in marriages. We know this to be true in vocational life. We know this to be true in relationships in general. The more I am satisfied and okay with who I am in Christ because of what I possess in him, the less I'm going to use someone for joy, and now I can serve them and give away what I've received. You're a free person. You're free. And so, have you felt, faith family, have you felt that wonderful stab of longing? Have you felt that kind of otherworldly joy break in on you? If you have, get after it. Go after it again. Run it down. Ask God for it again and again and again. Ask God in your prayer. Put that joy in my heart, God. I want to stumble upon that treasure, not just on Sunday mornings, but when, on Thursdays when I'm bored, when I'm tired, or when life is hard. I want to stumble again and again upon this treasure that brings this kind of joy. Let's get this joy in our heart. And may God grant us, married or single, to delight in Jesus Christ as the greatest treasure of the universe. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift that is Jesus Christ. We thank you that the greatest gift of the gospel is treasuring God above all things. God, I pray that we would get this joy in our hearts through all of the means of grace, through prayer, through reading the word, through meeting up with, with people in the church, through singing songs that remind us of this treasure. God, would help us to get this joy in our hearts and help us to realize that we are not waiting for anything to be complete. Help us to enjoy what we already possess. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.